welcome to She Wrote That. Here, our goal is to uplift hardworking female writers, bloggers, authors, journalists, and storytellers. Each episode features a conversation with a different female writer where we dig deep about everything writing related, from being a woman in the industry, to developing stories, to editing style, to mentorship. We are so excited to have you here. Welcome back for episode five of She Wrote That. I'm your host, Charlotte Barnes. I'm so excited to be back this week with another great guest. Today, I'm speaking with journalist Ariane Nettles. Ariane is a journalism lecturer at Northwestern University's Medill School. As a reporter and editor, her work often explores arts cultural ties to issues such as mass incarceration and educational inequity. Before coming to Medell full-time, she worked as a digital producer at Chicago's NPR station, WBEZ. She still works as a contributor there and contributes to other local and national publications like the Chicago Reader newspaper, gun violence nonprofit The Trace, and Zora, Medium's publication for women of color. She obtained bachelor and master of business administration degrees from Florida A&M University and a master of science and journalism degree from Medell. We discussed everything from her career switch, from business and journalism, to how to best keep up with new media, new technologies, to her experience teaching during COVID. Stay tuned to hear our discussion. began your career in business and marketing you weren't initially a writer what led you to change paths and become a journalist so I think because um like many people fresh out of college I thought that what I did in school that you'd actually be doing that um so I studied supply chain management and I really liked the kind of thought process. I, I love strategy, but going directly into a job, you know, like I did have an MBA, but even still, like, you know, with no, with not a lot of real life experience, you are not going to be the person making those strategic decisions and rightfully so. But, um, you end up in kind of an operational role where it's a lot of doing the same thing over and over again. So I um, planned transportation. I was a transportation planner. And I basically, to this day, can tell you how many, you know, like all these things about the trucking business and, you know, how Mm -hmm. about how much weight can you fit like paper into a truck, (laughs) you know, without it being too heavy. Um, and so that's really what I did. And I, and I felt like I was really good at it because, um, you know, I thought I was smart and I think I am smart where, you know, I could, I, I got it. And so it felt like for years though, I was in this role and I was still doing operational stuff, right? It, stuff you can do like, you know, with your eyes closed, kind of. Um, And again, like there is, like it is a puzzle piece, right? So I don't want to say that it's not difficult, but for me, that's not the part of it I was interested in. I was interested in, okay, strategically, how can we reduce our cost per ton, right? Like how can we do that? And I was not the person that could make those decisions because I was an entry-level 
transportation planner. And so from that, I started writing. I started a blog and people started saying that they really liked my writing. It was called Quarter Life Crisis. And I, you know, was very close. By this point, I was about 24, 23, 24. And I felt like, wait, these are all the things that nobody told me when I was in college, right? Like nobody told me that I have this like kind of existential crisis at this point where you are an adult, but you realize that adulthood is not what you thought it was going to be. So people started suggesting things like, well, you know, maybe you should write for, you know, an online magazine. Well, of course, now as a professional journalist, I know that you still need some type of, you know, that writing a article is not the same as maybe, you know, just writing a blog post or you could you could be a good writer, but there are things about structure and just, you know, basically how to how to really say certain things that I didn't know. And so probably rightfully so, nobody really gave me that opportunity to write. So I started my own online magazine and I went around Chicago and I like covered um, all types of really a lot of stuff in like the hip hop scene. So music and fashion and lifestyle stuff. And then I started writing for other lifestyle publications because they saw that I could write. But... um, and you, I got to a point where I realized if I really want to do this seriously, I need to go back to school because by this point I had freelanced for, um, a lot of brands and I had really, um, interviewed a lot of names, especially at the time. Um, but I just realized that if I wanted to do this for real, for real, I needed to go back to school. And that's what brought me back to Medill mm-hmm. as a student to get a second master's degree um, after already having one in business. And so that kind of like made me do that shift because I really did like it and I really did love it. And so now even today, it feels kind of surreal that what was my hobby 10 years ago is now something that I get paid to do. It's still kind of very <laughs> wild in that way. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So it was like, was starting that blog that first thing that made you say, hey, I really like writing. I might want to do this as a career. I think so, you know, and because I started it really just as an outlet, you know, how we kind of encourage people. Um, I know I do it a lot with, with kids and teens, you know, just write stuff down because it really can be an outlet. Um, I was going through a lot of stuff in my personal life at the time. And so it really was like a really nice, different hobby. Um, and so I think that was just the moment where it was like, okay, this might be more than a hobby though for you. Like this might be a purpose. And so like just trying to navigate what that would mean for me and how that's supposed to look took years and years and years and still years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think there are any skills that carried over from your first career in business into your journalistic work? I think so for sure. So, um, for example, when I first got to Medill, that was the first time I was doing a lot of like actual news, news writing, because even before that, um, before coming to Medill, I was um, freelancing for a newspaper here in Chicago called the Chicago Defender, uh, which is like one of the oldest black newspapers in the country. But a lot of stuff I did there was still pretty lifestyle based, if that makes sense. So, um, I mean, the just what we talk about when we teach reporting and getting facts and fact checking and a lot of those kind of just like basic fundamental things I um, didn't know how to do. And so when I got to Medill, I 
I can't remember who I told that I had an MBA and that I had a business degree and people really pushed me into doing some business reporting and it was so great. And ever since then, I've been thinking about, okay, how can I incorporate that back into what I do? I mean, I always, I I do see something and I might say, you know what, even if it's not, even if it hasn't been on my beat, I might say, this is a really cool business story that nobody's doing or that a lot of people don't understand and I think we should do it. And so I think I do think I still have that business mind. I'm actually working now on um, a podcast that is kind of based around money and business and economics. So I do think that being able to kind of pull that in makes sense, you know, in the in the very like kind of traditional how to cover a beat way, but also just, you know, all the things you do before you do journalism or after journalism or during journalism, they all really kind of still play a part in maybe how you write or how you ask questions or how you interpret stuff. Um, Cause it really is a industry of you are the person. Like everybody can maybe do a thing. Everybody can cover a thing, but everybody can't cover it like you. That's very true. Everyone kind of brings their own different perspective to what they do. Uh-huh. <laughs> and like you said, so you covered business, you've covered lifestyle, you covered arts and culture. Do you think you have a favorite subject to write about? Um, I, I think it's really weird because it it's probably still art, arts and culture because I think that even with the arts, I think I probably lean more on the culture piece of the art, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I am not, for example, a trained person who has a degree in art, right? And I understand that that is a very amazing and unique perspective to have, but I am mostly talking about art from the perspective of culture, right? How do, what, what is this art and expression of? What does it mean, right? What, how can it relate to other people? And that's usually kind of the angle that I have. So maybe I would say culture is probably the biggest thing because even when I talk about money, which I do really like to, I've, I've just never had the opportunity to cover it in depth, but, um, whether it's as a general assignment reporter or just seeing an opportunity and saying, Hey, if nobody else is doing this story, I want to do it. Um, I, I think that there's, it's all cultural, right? Like our, Mm -hmm. our relationship with money is cultural, right? What our parents taught us is cultural, how we view stuff, um, and all these things we still work through. And so I, I want to, I want to say maybe arts, but I guess maybe the more common thread is culture because I think it just touches so many things. That makes sense. I think that's interesting what you said about not, having that degree necessarily because I feel like it's easier to connect with people and connect with a wider audience when you don't necessarily have an arts degree you understand it more because the vast majority of people don't have an arts degree so your writing can kind of relate to people more yeah yeah you know I I think um I'm trying to think recently I did a story for the Chicago Reader and it was this kind of um mixed media presentation situation that a artist created but it was really um so the actual like art like what he used to create things I can maybe not come I can think it's interesting right and I can mention those things but what I was more interested about and what I talked with him about for over an hour was how the story was about um he so his 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 like one of his I think his great grandfather like a someone he'd never met he'd hear heard all these stories about him and they were kind of living in the northeast um but they the stories were about how um they knew he was fleeing from the south 
in you know for something in the early century so we, we don't know maybe what you know there's speculation there's stories um but it was really about like how he left the south as one person and then you know landed in this place and became something different um and I think it's just like such a common story, um, especially at that time we were talking about it and talking about history. It was, um, I want to say like the week maybe after the George Floyd protests began. And so we were really talking about how that history and how that story is actually like the story that a lot of black families in Chicago have, you know? And so I think that is more, more interesting, right? That is, and, and maybe not the word is more, but that is a interesting point that is relatable to most people right you know you know when we talk about family and past and history and you may hear stories about people you've never met right and what does that mean and what does that mean for you and who you are today and what does that mean right that is a common thread that any human has um and so pulling that out of stuff I think is very interesting to me like that is where my mind automatically goes to yeah that that sounds really fascinating yeah, yeah. And aside from just writing, you've worked on social media, audio, and video, and I know many of your Northwestern classes center around being a well-rounded multimedia reporter. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little about how you developed a passion for combining all those different skills. Well, I think that that also is um, one good thing, you know, and I guess just like a shout out to people who feel like they're career changers or maybe they studied something different in undergrad and then want to do something, you know, just if you have just all these, like, it's okay to have all to be multifaceted. And I think that that is really what helped me. And I didn't know at the time because I think I always thought I wanted to just be a magazine writer. That was my goal was to be a magazine writer and then to be an editor. So I actually never wanted pre- or never thought rather about um, doing video or audio or podcasting. But I think that now it's been so exciting to do that because you really learn the different ways to um, tell a story and how different stories really are made for different mediums, you know? So there are certain stories that I may also, you know, every time, for example, I work with Curious City, um, traditionally we do an audio story and then we also do a written story. But a lot of times there's just something about that audio story, um, the use of sound, um, the how the emotion that we can share where, you know, if you don't listen to that audio story, you're really missing something. You can read the story, um, but it's not going to be the same. And so, so much so that one thing that, you know, you'll notice is that most places that do audio and digital, like they, the digital story or the written story is a totally different story. It's not just a transcript of the audio story because how we listen and how we read are two totally different things. And so I think that that has made me a better journalist because even if let's say for example I'm not a primary I'm not primarily a video journalist, understanding how people um understand and how to get like your audience's attention is really what we're all working for now mm-hmm. in this, you know, world where there's so much seemingly to be media right I mean I guess you know what people classify as media can be different and it can change but you can't deny that there are a lot of work 
there's a lot of work being done. Even some you agree with, some you don't. But how do you get through the noise? And well, if you're trying to get through the noise and you're trying to have your media product stand out, it's going to have to be a way that you connect with the audience. And so I think understanding multimedia as a whole is so important because it truly makes you better, even if you decide like, hey, I'm still primarily a written journalist. Because I guess I still do probably writing more than anything else. That's what I probably do every week, every couple weeks at least. Um, but even with that, like I, I'm constantly thinking about the audience. Is this lead good, right? Is, is Does this make sense to people? And so is this conversational? Like learning radio writing and audio really taught me how to be a more conversational writer um, and how to like kind of adjust my tone when it's needed to be more conversational, which is, I think, a lot of things that a lot of people struggle with when you're going from writing to audio is you need to break up those sentences. You need to be really straightforward. You need to explain this as if you're talking to somebody because how we listen is how we is just different than how we read. So Mm -hmm. I think it really helps. Um, But I I wouldn't say that I would have expected to maybe be multimedia, but like now I feel comfortable. And, And part of it was really just, me being in spaces where I felt I had to prove myself. So I have to learn this. I have to do this. I can't just, you know, I'm not, especially if I'm not just hired to be um, a full-time writer, then I need to figure out other ways. Like I need some clips. I need to be out in the streets reporting. I need to do stuff. And so just kind of, I think having that attitude that if there's something to be done, I'm going to do it kind of, I think helped. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting how much multimedia adds to journalism as a whole nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I I know in the news yesterday was the guy who's correct, correctly forecasted every election since 1984, and I click on the New York Times article expecting to read a news story, and they had a video, and I mm. typically don't watch videos, but <laughs> I, I decided to do it, and it was so well put together. It was... They went back into his history. They talked about how he came with his, he came to develop his forecasting system. And then they did a little visual of his different little keys for Biden and Trump. And it was just so interesting and it added so much more to that story than if they'd just written a new story. See, now I need to go listen, uh, watch it rather, you know? <laughs> and so, and like that's, and that's just so, and you know, it's, it's different things like they do different things and I think that like the more we can embrace it and figure that out just the better we are yeah yeah I agree with you on that what advice do you have for a young journalist to looking to diversify their skills and become better at multimedia I would say um to really just try stuff um a lot of stuff I've tried on my own And it might even be embarrassing when I look back at it, but it got me thinking. So if I have an idea for a video, I might set up my tripod, record myself, um, give it a try. It always takes like triple the amount of time that it would take if I had. I mean, of course, you can also like, you know, if you have a crew of journalism friends, like you can always get together and try stuff with them, too. But. Um, I'm a mom and I live, I've never, I usually, I live pretty far south on the south side. So I may not have always had like coworkers or friends that live near me where I can just say, oh, okay, you want to come over. So I might just have an idea on a Saturday and I'm, and I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to record this and try this thing. But 
you do it and then you try it. And then even if it's not great, it can kind of be a proof of concept for you. So I, I tell everybody to just try something because, and then try it on your own. If people aren't going to let you do something, you can just do it yourself. So me, I have been feeling, um, cause I've been teaching a lot of podcasting classes during the quarantine, which I think is just also because, especially if let's say video is not, or at least outside video, traditional video documentary um, type of work has not been available because, of course, everybody was supposed to be at home. Mm-hmm. So because everybody was supposed to be at home, well, um, you know, students who may have wanted to do a documentary project might have decided, okay, instead I want to learn how to do audio in a podcast project. Mm-hmm. So with that, I've been editing everybody else's podcast and it's been, I've been itching to do something else. I don't think I've, I've done, I think the last audio story I did was at the end of the year, um, 2019. I did a story about Ida B. Wells' impact mm-hmm. in Chicago and like what her history was specifically here in the city. And so I've been itching and then I just said, okay, but why don't I just do what I want to do, you know? And so it's kind of like when you want to do something, just do it. You know, you start your own podcast. So if you have an idea for something and it's something that you care about and that you want to do, it's a story you want to tell, regardless of medium, just try it out and best believe when you get good at it, then people will pay you to do it. Like that's just how it works. As soon as you get good at something, people are going to pay you to do it. So don't wait on them to pay you to do it. Just get good at it, you know, and do what you got to do first. So that's my advice. Just do it. If you want to be a photographer, take photos. If you want to be a coder, do a free class on Code Academy or any of these other great places. You know, you want to be a videographer, just Get, get your phone out and start recording stuff and you'll be surprised at how much you can learn and how great you can get. Yeah. Yeah. Every little experience is a building block. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, I feel like quarantine has made people more interested in doing creative things. This was born out of quarantine. This has mm-hmm. only been happening for like two months. Okay. So. <laughs> and I'm sure you said, okay, well, I want to do this thing. Right. And so mm-hmm. why not? Like you are at home, you have the like there is technology for everything. Um, you found a great way to do it and to make it easy. And, you know, um, so I think that's the thing. Like we just got to do it. Like there's, and, and I hate it when people always say stuff like, oh, there's enough podcasts or there's so-and-so. <laughs> no, because your podcast isn't there. So there's not enough, right? Yeah. Back in the blogging days, which I think is, you know, different now because when we talk about it, it's like I see similarities in people creating podcasts now that we did when I was starting my blog, right? I think it was like on Blogspot or something and everybody was had a blog. But once when you're consistent, when you um, have something that's really high quality and well thought out and continually making it better, you're going to stand out from maybe the podcast that maybe don't have a specific theme or, you know, you can tell when people don't have actual questions or topics and they just hit play with their friends and record. And there's a space for that. But mm-hmm. especially if you see yourself as a journalist, you can have your podcast stand out because you can show a podcast can show your interviewing skills. It can show your editing skills. It can show all these things. Um, and so there is plenty of space for whatever project you desire and it gives you clips so that then when you do want to apply for stuff 
Um, and it, even if it's in a multimedia that maybe you weren't traditionally trained in, mm-hmm. you can still get jobs. So just you got to but you got to have like a proof of concept or you got to show people what you can do, what you know you can do. Um, and so it's just just starting, hitting, hitting the start button and, and doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely the first challenge for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard. So I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And since technology is ever changing, changing, that means multimedia is ever changing too. Do you have advice for staying on top of all, all the new technology and all the different developments? I think that um, if there's something, you know, that you're really interested in, you know, um, being kind of connected, whether like if let's say you are into podcasts and you sign up for podcast newsletters and stuff that kind of talk about the industry, maybe. But I think overall, sometimes you probably get your biggest um, understanding of new stuff when you just watch it. Like um, immediately I'm thinking about like how we view social media video differently than traditional video in the past. You know, I think it used to be that everybody used to only see, um, you know, very long thought out, maybe Q&A TV type 30 minute interviews on TV and now you see people doing shorter quicker um, kind of sometimes word only you know like words and images no sound or like stuff that you can easily watch with the sound off so just kind of noticing those trends helps you then identify okay well what technology are is people are people using to make this stuff so I think that that is probably the easiest, especially if you aren't really sure what you like and just know you kind of like everything, just kind of having your eyes open and saying, I really like how they created this video. And then you see, you know, what people do. So for example, um, well, I know when I was at WBZ, of course we had tools where, um, if you added an audio clip, it could kind of create the sound waves for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, you can, so then you have like a video file to share on Twitter, for example. Well, if I want that, like I've seen that thing, if I want to do that thing, I literally can just Google sound wave video and find what new technology there is to maybe help me out. Um, And so I think that that's just kind of like being aware and seeing stuff and then saying, this works. I like this as an audience member myself. This worked for me. I liked how this drew me in. I liked how this helped, whatever. And then really drawing from that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the internet and newsletters are really great resources to stay on top of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so backtracking to talking about Northwestern. So you received your master's from there. And now you're a lecturer there. So tell me a little about that transition from being a student to becoming a teacher there. So it was actually, um, I think it was mentally difficult, um, not difficult because I, from like, you know, as a setup, because I think people were very welcoming, but it's, I think it was very difficult for me to say, okay, well, to maybe find my voice because I am working with so many people who I admire, um, Mm -hmm. And finding maybe my voice to say I have a different opinion or I have a different viewpoint on something 
um, which is why they hired me, right? Like if you get a job, they hired you because you're bringing something different. Like they wouldn't hire you for if if they didn't want you to bring you to this place most of the time. Um, and so figuring that out to say, okay, I understand that this is the way we've always done something, but I think we should do something differently. Um, and not being afraid to do that. Um, I think this quarantine has been helpful because I have like had classes where I might be the only person teaching it or um, it's a new class that I'm developing and I haven't always had that opportunity. And so I kind of can really play around. Um, and, and when I say play around, I don't mean take it lightly, but mm-hmm. I can experiment, I can study, I can read and I can say, okay, based off of how I think art virtual learning goals are this is how I'm going to modify my class this is how I'm going to work on engagement you know and everything is not always a slam dunk um but I think that being a student and being really close to things I do kind of remember very clearly what was hard for me you know what what was difficult as a student and so I think that it has helped me put myself in their shoes and say okay I am sure that you guys are tired. You look tired. I know this point in the quarter is already tiring and with it being on Zoom all day. Okay, so let's extend this deadline. Let's change this up. Um, Instead of, I've been doing a lot where instead of having a formal Zoom class, I will have the students like set up like 15 minute appointments with me and we can go over like their work one-on-one because it's hard on zoom right you know normally yeah. i could just walk around the class and say hey anybody has any problems raise your hand i'll walk around well, we can't do that right so trying to reinvent how we do stuff um and a lot of stuff like for example with coding classes it's that one-on-one attention that people need because everybody is going to be at a different level Everybody is going to understand different things. And so being able to kind of really give people that attention, it might mean, though, that I might have like days like this week where I literally have two days with just back to back student meetings. But I would rather do that than to have a two hour class where nobody understands anything and we're just going. So I think that one, even though the transition is weird, I think that from student to faculty member is that. I do remember that and just being able to really kind of remember how did I learn, what helped me learn, and what did not help me learn. Um, but I really think the biggest transition was probably like that mental shift to say it's okay to maybe disagree with someone. Um, it's okay to want to do stuff your own way, even if somebody else is seeing it in a different way. And now, because I actually study being a teacher I read I listen I am in Facebook groups and I have new Twitter friends who are at universities across the country and I'm always talking to people about what's working for them and what's not um so I can make an educated decision on how to try maybe new things in the classroom Mm -hmm. um so it's not like I'm just coming in and saying oh I want to change stuff right it's more so like hey in my experience, I running this class or doing this thing, this was beneficial. This was not, I would focus, I would refocus energy here, you know, and being able to say that confidently has been the biggest shift. Um, but one that I think I really kind of really happened during quarantine when, you know, it's just me and the students and we got to 
work it out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that kind of understanding is really appreciated from the student perspective, though. I think I think so. You know, I think especially being like um, because I didn't do undergrad at Northwestern. Mm -hmm. So um, but even with that, right, I can tell like when I'm teaching a freshman class, like our freshman multimedia class where normally that was a very hands-on class. We had to do that 100% virtually in the spring. Mm -hmm. um, I could say, listen, I know this sucks. I understand. But let me tell you, um, you have to do this, let's say, for example, a video project. Let's talk about what some of my friends in the field are doing. Let's see what tips they have, right? Because we're all in the same boat. So um, being able to really be kind of re trying to be relatable, but especially I think with the master students, because I was in the exact program. It's different, of course, but it's very, I, I know what it's like to be stressed out, to be learning this, to be confused, to not, you know, it's, it's, a, and it's a really quick program. It's just a year long. So if you're in and out and, um, it can kind of feel like a wave of decisions, right? So if you only have a year to do something, um, whether I take this class or that class can can feel really heavy. You know, it could be like a really heavy decision or mm -hmm. how to do certain things. So I do get it. Now I always tell them, I, I understand. I get it. Trust me. Yeah. Aside from adapting your class schedule and how you're doing that, do you think you learned anything major from teaching during quarantine? I have. Um, I think that I really learned that... Um, there are just, you can't do everything. You know, I think that traditionally, um, especially in a school like Medill, where I would say even faculty, we're really ambitious. We want to try a lot of things. Um, and so I think learning that prioritization and figuring out and going back to basics can be just really helpful. And I think that that's, those are also things we can take back when we're not in quarantine anymore. You know, when we're not virtual and we can go and do as we please and we're all back in the same classroom together is to say, what? let's go back to the basics. What should you walk away knowing from this class? And let's rebuild from there. Let's let's figure out, you know, what you need to know and how's, how's the best way for you to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Um because I do think it's really hard to do that kind of stuff. And normally, um, and I'm so new, I don't even know all of the process for curriculum. So I could be even saying this wrong, but I know that normally a lot of testing has to be done to change stuff. But in this virtual world, we had to redo everything. You had no choice. Um, and so that just gives you the opportunity to say, okay, well, what what's most important, do I think? Um, and so... I hope that like that continues even when we are back to whatever we think is normal or whatever we call normal, that we really focus and try to go back on like, if you, if you leave this class with nothing else, what do you need to know? Um, because it is, like you said earlier, there's so many things to think about, you know, when mm -hmm. it comes to journalism and everything is constantly changing. But realistically, certain things are going to be the same. So, for example, if you know how to do a video in Premiere, you can figure out how to do a video in any other program, right? Like, like you just need to know, you know, you can Google and say, where is the so-and-so? Where is this tool? Because you know the names of it or you know what it's supposed to do in one tool. So mm -hmm. how can we really like pare stuff down? And because things are going to constantly be changing and they may not remember all of that, but certain things they can't remember. Like 
I want, this is called a this, this is this, this is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's good. It's good. It kind of made you think about reemphasizing the basics because those are, there are certain fundamentals of journalism that should be taken out of every class. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've really been focusing on like the audience and I don't teach an audience class, but I think that that is one thing where regardless of what you're creating, if people do not want to read, listen, watch, whatever, you're probably, you know, you didn't hit your mark. Um, Mm -hmm. And so really even, you know, reemphasizing that, okay, who's the audience for this though? You know? Um, And so just those, like you said, those basic things that can get lost when we are very ambitious, um, but not focused on what is helping people. Yeah. Yeah. And you've worked for AP and like you said, Chicago's NPR station. So those obviously have really large audiences. What do you think that taught you about working to large audiences and writing for them, producing for them? I will say, um, that's a good question. I will say that AP has a wider audience as far as the target Mm -hmm. Um, with, with WBZ, they are a local newsroom and so everything should have a local angle but even in that you know um I think it taught me to really um kind of find my voice in that um I think well I would say when I was at AP I was really a sponge I was working and I was listening to people and I just loved how I felt like I always tell people like AP was like my boot camp. It was like my training <laughs> ground, you know. Mm-hmm. I I learned how to do breaking news there. I learned how to fill in. And so just because of the type of site it I mean the type of organ news organization it is, it's just mm-hmm. so multifaceted, but everything is usually moving fast. And so you learn how to move fast and accurately. You make mistakes. I made so many mistakes and people there were so gracious to teach me um so that I could be better. And so then moving from there to um, WBZ, I did feel confident in saying, you know what? I don't know about this lead. Like, I don't know about this tweet. I don't know about, you know, whatever. And then also going back to that audience. And I think it does come from maybe me being in marketing and business and all these different business roles first Mm -hmm. that um, because I, my most recent corporate job before coming to journalism full-time was a social media role it was in marketing and so it's all about the audience and so that's always in the back of my head and so I think coming into that newsroom that was my key thing is hey we got a specific newsroom you know AP is pretty much sharing it so that regardless of whether you are in Connecticut or Texas you can pick up this story and you can share if you're one of you know the AP member stations, um, you can take this and you can post it as is. That is really what they created for. You can take the info or if you want to, you could just, you know, post it as is. But Chicago is not like that, right? If Chicago is the audience, Chicago is the audience. And you need to figure out what is going to make this make sense. Um, And so I did feel a little bit more comfortable um, being able to say, I think we need to reformat this. I think maybe this title is off, you know, so. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Was it hard shifting from that really large, like, national audience to more of a local audience? It was, but it was fun. And I think Mm -hmm. I want to say it was like, 
maybe two weeks difference. It wasn't that long either. I think my last day at AP was um, maybe the, because I, rem- I remember my birthday is August 1st. So I know that I wasn't working on my birthday. And so I was done by then. So I want to say maybe the last week in July. And then I started at WBZ on August like 14th, 15th. And so it was such a quick kind of flip um, where I did have more, you know, you do have a little bit more freedom. Um, radio is conversational. And so a radio station, even its digital presence should be more conversational. Um, and I think that that kind of more magazine style writing was something that I was hoping to finally get to. And so that was kind of really nice. Um, to kind of do featurey stuff. I always, you know, I thought that I would have done that at a actual magazine more, you know, full time, but that didn't happen. But it also helped me kind of, you know, get more runway when it comes to freelancing even now. Um, and so I really did miss that kind of featurey work because you get to talk about details and stuff in a way that you can't just in a in a primarily news story. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So speaking a little more about what you've done in Chicago. So you founded your own organization promoting writing among teens there called Write Chicago. Tell me about what prompted you to start that. So back when I had my, um, back when I had my kind of online magazine blog thing that I was working on, um, I actually started it from that. So I always try to think about like being from Chicago, being from the South side, I'm always thinking about like, what is my role in service? And I am a firm believer that like whatever gifts or talents you have, that is probably a good way to start. So, um, you know, you do like the service projects where maybe, you know, you pack food or, you know, go to do different things like that. But like what other things can you provide? Right. And being a product of Chicago public schools, um, most of my family are, you know, so many have so many CPS teachers in my family. And so. I care a lot about education and I care a lot about students in the city. And so I did a, um, it was supposed to just be one event though. So it was supposed to be just one writing workshop for teens because I always feel like too, like, you know, there's a lot for younger kids, but sometimes when we get to our teenage kids, we feel like we can't save them. You know, it feels like mm-hmm. everybody has kind of given up on them and that if you haven't learned certain things by a certain age, then, you know, it's just like push them through the system. And so I wanted to focus on teens specifically, but it was just supposed to be one writing workshop for teens. And I threw it and it was in January it was a snowstorm, so it wasn't really that many people that came. Most of the kids that came were related to me, probably. But even after that, people were messaging me. The few people that did come messaged me, and people who couldn't make it said, "Hey, we, you know, we signed up, but we couldn't make it because of the snow. We were snowed in. Like people were snowed into, like couldn't get the garage door up, and people were really like snowed in. Mm-hmm. And so, um. 
we people were asking though, like, when is the next one? And I said, I don't really know because this is really just supposed to be a one event type thing. So um, that is kind of when it morphed into something more. And I try to do um, them whenever I can. Usually, though, um, when someone says, hey, you can use our space for free, because, of course, um, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't I just I, I pretty much um buy all the supplies and anything that I need and then I just like show up and so mm-hmm. um anytime a school says hey you can come host it here or you can do whatever then I'll go and so of course like they are free writing workshops um because it is a service thing and so um whatever anybody who can let me come in to their school so as soon as you know I I hate that COVID kind of happened because I was trying to hopefully do some stuff for the end of the year um but you know I don't know maybe now it's time to figure out how to virtually do some stuff with that Mm -hmm. one thing that I found is that um a lot of high school students applying for college when it comes to their college essays Finding stories to write can be difficult, but it's not because they don't have amazing stories. It's because they're fine. They're struggling finding the story. You know, mm-hmm. same with journalism, right? You can write something great, but you might be struggling to find the story. Yeah. And I found that there are so many kids with these like amazing stories and amazing things they have overcome and things that they have like things that show lead, like all the things that you want to show a college admissions counselor leadership, um, resilience, diligence, responsibility, all these things, they may not see those things as things to write a college essay about. So I really do, they're probably my favorite. I mean, I love like the middle school kids because they're so excited and they have so much energy, but I would Mm -hmm. say I really love working with the kids who are kind of getting prepared to go to college because I see that as being a very um, usable skill where you can walk away and at least have an idea or a start of something that you should write for your college essay. Like, what is your story? And we talk a lot about being the hero of your own story, not letting other people determine what makes you great. You, you, you're going to be the person that decides that and figures that out. And so, um, yeah, but it really just started as one. That was a very long way to say that it started as one event as a service, um, as like kind of like a community service fun thing. Mm -hmm. And, people just say, well, okay, well, when's the next one? And so if people say, when's the next one? You got to do the next one. How can you not? How many do you typically hold in a year? It depends. Lately, it's been really slow. Lately, it's only been like one or two a year. But um, the goal in great times is to be once a quarter. I think that the thing was I was on like a really strong kind of um, a strong um kind of uh why am I I was on a a roll for a while and then Mm -hmm. I and then especially when I went back to school so then I was kind of stressed and tired and broke all the time because I was (laughs) (laughs) and then um for a lot of my time after school um outside of once I graduated was I had a lot of times where it's like I'm in this job and now I'm in this other job so um I always tell people like it's been a long time since I've really made money 
Um, so that was also part of it because I do, like I said, I do try to invest a lot of money into everyone I do. I try to, I usually buy folders and notebooks and fresh pens and all that type of stuff. Um, because I want it to feel like when you go to a really nice conference, you know, like Mm -hmm. as an adult, when you go to a really nice conference and, you know, they have like something for you and you have like a little, um, you know, maybe maybe you have a name tag or if you don't have a name tag, you have something that feels personalized. Like you have a little area with, you know, a notebook and stuff that you take with you. So that's really important that when I do it, I want it to be really nice. I want it to be that you have come to something that feels welcoming and feels like it was created just for you and that it doesn't feel like school because um, to be clear, I totally respect all of the high school English teachers, especially doing all the hard work. But I also know that when a kid sees you every day, you're not a guest anymore, right? Like you're not, Mm -hmm. you know, even, even with college, right? It's important for me to bring in speakers and guests that I've worked with or people just doing, anybody's doing amazing things because even if we work together, this person is a guest and you're used to seeing me all the time. You need to hear from somebody new. So I really want it to be a special thing. And so I haven't had as many lately, but they've been bigger, if that makes sense. Like they may be, um, they've had more people. Um, and so hopefully once COVID has, does whatever it's going to do, then we can get back to doing in-person stuff. But I'm also really thinking about for the fall as high school students start to work on their personal essays, what virtual services I can help now. And hopefully maybe I can even reach more people. Is it all you or do you have volunteers who help you? It's me, but I do have volunteers that um, might say, you know, like, so I, I guess the volunteers are usually my friends and family, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I do always um, have a panel um, most, yeah, almost every time I have a panel and those are volunteers that will come. Um, I usually start with people I know, you know, so like my friends or family who are doing cool stuff. Um, but for example, I want to make sure that this doesn't feel like something that's only for people who want to be writers. Cause most people mm-hmm. don't want to be writers, but the thing is, is that writing, or at least the goal is to show that writing has benefits because it shows how you can communicate. And when you can communicate that helps. So a panel might have a lawyer, a person who wrote a book and, somebody who uses writing for something else right so but but they're all professional people who kind of do cool stuff I've had you know musicians rappers um poets so it's usually a variety of people but it is um those are volunteers who come and they just add just a certain flavor to the workshops that I could not achieve alone so Mm -hmm. normally I might be the person doing the kind of teaching if that makes sense but then I think just as important are the the times to have guests come and just talk about their own experience. And that really, we usually kind of end with that because the kids get so excited and they have so many questions. Um, and then afterwards, they want to talk to them and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. So usually that'll be towards the end, like the last thing we do before people start feeling kind of tired and out of it like we do. Um, <laughs> 
So I would say that that's probably, um, but so, so I had, there's a mix, but I do most of the curriculum and teaching. That's awesome that you're giving them such great role models from diverse fields. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I try, cause I just, you know, when you just think about like school as it's, as, as school, right? Because you go every day. It's not going to mm-hmm. always be seem cool to everybody. So, like, what ways can we use to make stuff feel different and interesting? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, like, I use a lot of rap quotes because I love rap music and hip-hop. And so mm-hmm. I use a lot of that, you know. And so just making it, like, have a photo booth, right? Like, where you can come and it has, like, all the signs you can hold up and, you know, so just trying to make it feel relatable, but which now I know also is that now I'm older. And so kids, they listen to different rap music. You know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I, they're not, they're, if I make a Biggie reference, they don't know it. <laughs> um, and that's very wild to me. But um, yes, I love it. It's so much fun. I have fun every time I do it. And I almost cry just because I get excited. Mm-hmm. yeah that sounds like an awesome experience yeah so I'm sorry we're going a little bit over time but I have a few questions that I ask everyone who comes on so the first one is if you could go back in time to when you first began writing what advice would you give yourself I would say to not stop because now that I'm writing now I am remembering all these times that I like, like I had a poem in some young author's book and like all these things I've done that I just totally forgot and I lost my way. And so just saying, just keep writing, whether it's for just for you or for anybody, just keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Consistency is key. Mm -hmm. And what advice do you have for other female writers in particular? Um, hmm. I would say to find your voice and be really unapologetic about what that is and who you write for. So if, for example, you know, a lot of times if you, let's say you want to write for a women's magazine, um, like one of the magazines I contribute to often, Zora, is just for women. Mm-hmm. Be unapologetic about who your audience is. If this is for women, this is for women, right? Or, you know, women identifying people. Whatever your whatever your audience is, that's okay, right? Um, I'm also somebody who has written for black publications, right? If the audience is black people, the audience is black people. Or if the audience is, is, is young people, right? And so I think that especially as women writers, we're kind of seen as if we are not writing for the traditional white male listener or reader, mm-hmm. um, then we are not good enough or we didn't do our job, you know? And I think that that is just crazy. So I think that just really saying who, who like be unapologetic, like this is what I'm doing. This is my goal. I am writing for this and that's okay. Right. So if you create something that is just for women, it's just for women and that's totally fine. Yeah. I, I love that word. And I love that advice. I had someone a few episodes tell me the same exact thing. Be unapologetic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or because you hear people push back and say, well, what about and it's like, no, that's not what I created this for. Like if your goal is to create something to inspire women or to educate women or to do whatever with women, then that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that we and I think we're really 
good at that. You know, like we we kind of figure out like, no, this is who I want to touch. This is who I want to reach with whatever I'm creating. And I think we're really good at um, not being afraid to do that. But then once you do it, don't be like be unapologetic and, you know, ignore it. You know, we we hear this thing like I know this isn't particularly writing, but um, in radio, women have a hard time in radio because women traditionally get way more negative feedback from listeners than men do about their voice, about how they sound, about how they pronounce stuff. And um, you just got to tell everybody. So whether it's like, you know, something like that or it's written, it's just forget them. You do you. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the right mentality. And I know there are so many, but what do you think is the most important skill that a writer can have? Listening. I agree with you on that. Yeah. And it took me a really long time to get that because even then when I used to say like, oh, I have writer's block. And one time someone told me like, writer's block isn't really a thing, right? Like it's probably that you don't have anything to write about. You know how sometimes you get blocked as far as like, you know, I'm looking for a specific word. I can't think of a thing, you know, but like just pure writer's block for me usually indicates that I didn't do enough reporting. If so, if it's a reported thing, I didn't do enough reporting or maybe like, but if I actually, or if it's an interview, you know, like kind of a feature, if I listen to what they're saying, then I should be able to synthesize that. So that's why I say listening is like, you got to have something to write about unless it's of course a first person situation. Mm-hmm. And even then you got to figure out how to listen to yourself and say, what was the most, what's the most important thing I personally want to share with this thing I'm writing? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's so important, especially as a journalist. Mm-hmm. And are there any books that you've read that have seriously changed how you approach writing or what topics you like to cover? Not really. I think maybe because often, like, I mean, I do read a lot of, I, I, I kind of try to read some of everything, um, but different books have inspired me in different ways. I do write, I read a lot of fiction. So in those mm. ways, I may not be um, inspired by what I am currently doing, but I do think that um, it inspires me to one day write a fiction book, but I haven't written much fiction, or at least I haven't published much. I've probably written a lot of fiction and then just like hit it away in certain places. Um, I, as far as like nonfiction and how I cover Chicago, um, my friend Natalie Moore, her book South, South Side is so good. Um, and it, well, the South Side, it always kind of sits somewhere near my desk and kind of reminds me like, hey, when I'm writing about Chicago and Chicago culture and Chicago communities, it is really um, kind of a reminder to me. And so that's one that came, that just immediately came to me. I'm sure there's way more, but that just kind of comes to me because of the fact that like, it was one of the first books I read that talked about stuff on the South Side and being from the South Side. Like it, it related, right? Like I could read it and I understood it. And I know that when I create stuff, I want people, even if they're learning, as they're learning new information, I want them to be connected to stuff and to get it and to feel like I want it to feel accurate and to feel authentic. So that has really like kind of been in my mind as I do more Chicago coverage. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. 
I'll have to look that book up because I've only been to Chicago once before. So I feel like I need to do some more learning before I move Yeah, there. yeah. It's really great. And also, like, she has been actually teaching a really cool um, class this summer to our new master's students since they haven't, you know, been able to, everybody can't really come to Chicago right now. And it's about Chicago books. And so I actually um, have to get her like syllabi, her reading list for that class, because I think it's really cool. And do you think you have a favorite story you've written? Oh, I I guess if I had to choose a favorite favorite, um, it would be um, I did a Curious City story where um, in Curious City is a part of WBZ where um, people ask questions about Chicago and the region and somebody asked about how the Great Migration contributed to blues in Chicago. And my grandparents actually moved from Mississippi to Chicago during the Great Migration and they had a blues club and a record label. And I um, wrote and did an audio story, but also wrote a story about... um, how they are an example of how the Great Migration brought people to Chicago and create helped create this great blues scene. And so I think that is like my most favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it would be other people's favorite, but it's my personal favorite. And then when my mom listened, she cried. And then my aunt oh. cried. And then like when it came out on like a Sunday and then we all like gathered at my aunt's house and we just like told stories about them and it was just really nice so I think that's probably why I like it the most because I could see very clearly the emotion that it evoked from people yeah that's awesome you get you got to talk about your family history that way yeah yeah and when people read your work what do you hope their biggest takeaway is I hope that their biggest takeaway is that um Everything means something, Um, you know, whether it is talking about like a family dealing with gun violence or a new art exhibit. Everything means something. Right. It's Mm -hmm. and, and everything that we look at and that we experience is the result of something greater or a bunch of things greater. Right. And I think that um really having an understanding about that. Right. So if we're talking about mass incarceration um, it's like, well, how did we get here? Right. And what does it do to families? And what does it, you know, cause I think that a lot of times we have a lot of opinions on stuff, but, um, what facts are based around those opinions that we, that we know? Um, and what do, what do these things mean and what do they mean to different people? Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome to have that sort of basis around context, contextualization. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the word. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's all I have. But thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for thinking about me and having me. I really appreciate you. Once again, a huge thank you to Ariane for joining me on the show. To read about and hear her work, you can find it on WBEC, Zora on Medium, or in the Chicago Reader, amongst other publications. To learn more about this podcast, you can find us at She Wrote That Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at She Wrote That Pod on Twitter. And make sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for stopping by. We'll see you next time.